saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming back at you in the new year. Happy New Year to everybody, including you. Carl, the sound guy's with us. <laughs> That's it, just a chortle. Well, no, you know. Not, no Happy New Year to all your fans. There's something about consistency. Yeah, okay. Well, I think both your fans would like you to say Happy New Year. All two of them. All right, we have a great show today. Uh, something that falls in line with the headlines that are happening right now. Uh, and right now would be, you know, we taped a show for, for later broadcast, but Elizabeth Holmes was found guilty yesterday. Dun, 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 dun. I'll have to give it to Soren. He was, he was correct about that all along. He, I did, thought, he did predict some, he did predict jail time. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's going to get a little bit. I mean, and I do mean a little. So if anybody was paying attention, you know, weird laser eyes, Elizabeth Holmes, she, <laughs> you know. Didn't get, didn't get it through the jury. We have a guest who has some experience with this kind of trial, with this kind of story, with fraud and RICO in, in corporate governance. His name is Evan Hughes. Evan is an author. He has written for the New York Times Magazine, GQ, New York Magazine, CNBC, Slate, Slate, again, because, you know, Carl wrote this, <laughs> and, and the New York Review of Books. There you go. Great. It's the new year and Carl's already being Carl. Uh, he is the author of several books. One of his books turned out to be a major motion picture starring Matthew McConaughey. All right. All right. All right. Okay, Carl. It hits close to home for me because being a native of Flint, Burton, Michigan, Detroit, for all those who know Michigan, the trials of white boy Rick, who I understand now doesn't like being called white boy Rick. Really? Oh, maybe that's because he's in jail. I don't know. Or was in jail. Although Evan would really like to talk about, and I really want to talk about, his latest book, soon to be released, not even released yet, is The Hard Sell. The Hard Sell tells the inside story of a band of entrepreneurial upstarts who made millions selling painkillers until their scheme unraveled, putting them at the center of a landmark criminal trial. I've read this book. Well, welcome to the show, Evan. Happy to be here. I read your book, cover to cover. On Saturday. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, not everyone does that. No, I've, I've, I, well, look, we, we should also say, because we didn't even announce the, the company itself, it's Insys Therapeutics and their drug Subsys. I, I had some experience with this back in 2014 and 15 when they were just becoming public. So it was, it was a really interesting read for me. And I want to talk about that. But first, White Boy Rick matters to me to some degree. Home, hometown. Well, I mean, kind of my hometown. Detroit's not really my hometown, but I, I found it a pretty fascinating story about this kid who's still in high school that became kind of the inside man for, what is it, the FBI, the feds? Yeah, the feds. He used him as an informant, and he was like, he was only 14 when that started, 14 until he was about 17, 18. He was an informant for the FBI while all, all along dealing drugs in Detroit, and he he operated in a world in a tough neighborhood in Detroit. There's really not any other kind, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he became, the, the, there were drug dealers in Detroit in this era, this is the eighties when that, that had a kind of a quasi celebrity status. Yeah. N not all of them were celebrities in the major media, but like on the street, everybody knew who they were, knew their nicknames. And he was one of them. And he was basically the only white guy in that group. And he was like, by far the youngest. He was a kid, um, but he was kind of a shrewd, a shrewd businessman. And what people did not know at the time was that he was like also ratting everybody out for the feds. To some degree, he was exploited by the FBI and they kept it quiet that they were using an informant who was so young and 
Right. So that only emerged decades later. Because that's probably not that's probably not legal in and of itself. Yeah, minor use. <laughs> it's not technically illegal, but really, it's fr- frowned upon. That's not technically illegal. You'd have to have like permission of the parents. There's like extremely strict guidelines on it. You couldn't have him like committing crimes. Yeah, was it wasn't the dad a total deadbeat kind of like in on it? Yeah, he, so his dad was like you know, dealt guns. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he had like a legitimate gun store, but he, he was also dealing like out of his house in the neighborhood as one does, (laughs) as one does. And he wasn't asking questions about who these people were that were buying the guns. And, um, you know, it was kind of a wild west time. You could buy guns with like 200 bucks and not show any ID or even get a receipt. And, you know, the feds at first approached the father thinking he would have some info on like the local drug gangs. And like he basically brought his son along to meet with the feds. What a guy. And it turned out like the son was the one who knew knew the score. So, yeah, And I know you're saying it's not strictly illegal to, to use a minor as an informant, but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when it comes to like drugs and guns and and that kind of thing. I'm not I'm not sure they could have got away with that if they were running that up the chain properly. Yeah. It's a little icky. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It was a, it would have been a huge embarrassment to the federal government if it came out at the time because there was no way to be working with him without knowing he was also committing crimes, like let alone the fact that he was a minor. It's interesting. It's my time, you know. I mean the I mean the 80s are, you know, I when I came of age, I was 18 and 87. I don't ever remember hearing about White Boy Rick or this story. When did you when did you first start writing? You first started uh, writing a magazine article right before it became a book yeah so actually it's debatable whether it's a book there's this there's this outlet called the atavist that published it which does like they do stories of a length that are like longer than even your longest like new yorker story say but but they're yeah it's like a two-hour read right but they're not full-length book so so that's what it is and it you know, I first started working on it because I had read some like pretty obscure column about White Boy Rick and how it was kind of an injustice that he was still in jail because this guy, you know, we haven't mentioned that, but he ended up doing 28 years in prison on a drug. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. On a drug charge, nonviolent offense. And, you know, you'll remember in the 80s, there was this kind of a hysteria about cocaine in particular and crack. And there were these laws. I mean, Michigan had a draconian law about the 650 lifer law that if you possessed over 650 grams of cocaine, that was it. You were going to jail for life. Uh, well, you know, California did the three strikes and you're out and everybody came along with it. And I, I know this is not going to help me get liberal guests the way Carl's really working hard <laughs> for me. But but Uh-oh, here we go. Here we go. They deserved it. Well, right? I mean, not they didn't deserve it at all. No, no. But, you know, Clinton and um, President Biden. Yeah. Super predator. Yeah. Really were the architects of of the big crime bill in the 90s that. Yes, like the 94 crime bill, yep. Yeah, the, I mean, here's this kid, he's in jail for 28 years. You know, what's what's the over-under on Elizabeth Holmes getting 28 months? <laughs> I'm thinking it's somewhere in the two to five year range is my guess on Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, less than Rick, less than white boy Rick. <laughs> yeah, and at the time in the 80s, like <laughs> in state law, like the average sentence for murder was like eight years or the, the average you would actually serve. Right. So it was just an insane imbalance. No, it's, it, it's, and it's still, it, look, it's still not fixed. There's still a pretty, in my mind, a pretty insane imbalance for yeah. you know, people that are involved in self-harm versus people who buy guns and mm-hmm. either, you know, intimidate, you know, strong arm or kill people. The sentences are not, it make no sense to me mm-hmm. to this day, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, it's one of the things that the white boy Rick story is about is kind of like the failures of the drug war. This just didn't make any sense the way they approached it. No. And, and you actually interviewed him. I guess he was already in jail, right? Yes, he was. He was in jail in Michigan. He'd been there for, you know, 20 years plus, And. So he was already there 20 years when you interviewed him. 
So he was he was white man Rick at that time. I mean, he was yeah. white old man Rick. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, definitely. <laughs> he was white man Rick. You know, he'd been trying to get some media attention to the story. Talked to me willingly, was very forthcoming about his crimes. You know, he certainly felt that he was a victim in some ways, but he didn't fixate on portraying himself as a victim. You know, he was sort of like, I did this stuff. I deserve punishment, but this is crazy. And and also, like, I was used. And, you know, I, the feds, they sort of talked a big game to him about they were going to be helpful if he ever got in trouble. And then they kind of walked away. So, yeah, I went up to Manistee, Michigan. Do you know it? Uh, that is in the UP, right? The Upper Peninsula? Uber. It, it, it's not, but it might as well be. It's way up there to the northwest, like, uh, uh, and it's the middle of nowhere. It, yeah, I mean, it was like a four-hour drive from Detroit, I want to say, and, like, the last hour is just trees, you know, and then and then, and then the prison. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. believe me, it's it's so close to the Upper Peninsula, it might as well be. You're right. Yeah, I know where it is now, yeah. There was a, a, a prison in Marquette where I went to college in, uh, in northern Michigan, and, uh, it, you know, it was the same kind of deal, right? I mean, this is, it was a supermax prison, too, because... Where are you going to go? <laughs> and uh, w when they would have the occasional prison break, they would they would put it over the radio. And the same guys who would go bear hunting. Would, would go uh, people hunting. <laughs> yeah, with the same weapons. Yeah, with like, you know, 50 caliber, you know, guns. Uh, nobody got away. I think Manistee was the same. But, you know, anyway, I digress. Go. So, so he got out this past summer, right? Oh, I don't know. I... That's about right. He he, it's a little complicated because he then had to serve some time oh. in Florida. Then you know he's in the halfway house, and yeah, he finally is out. Like I want to say, this past summer is right. So the movie and your book and all that stuff did nothing to get him out any sooner. It's possible it did play a role in the sense that he was he was finally paroled in Michigan. Like at a certain point, they rolled back the law such that all these people who were serving life just for possession, they became eligible for parole. They didn't get released right away, but they became eligible. So he started having parole hearings every five years or whatever it is, got denied a couple of times. And then finally, like after all this attention, which if I may talk myself up, I think I sparked, he, he was finally paroled. And it was kind of, I went to the parole hearing. It was outside of Detroit. Like they brought him from the prison to a play. And it was actually, there was a lot of media attention and, and attendance. So they had to like move it into a bigger room and all of that. And uh, it was pretty intense. The, the, the guy who was kind of from the board assigned to interview him went through like his entire criminal history often cited my story, actually, it, you know, instead of, how was your behavior in prison? What's the offense you were in for, et cetera? It was like, tell your entire story. Here's everything you did since you were 12. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it seemed to me kind of brutal because it's like, well, none of this stuff would like be admissible in court. This like he wanted to know everything. And really what they just want the inmate to do is like own it and just say, yeah, I did this stuff. And, did he own and not try to. He did. He did. Although there was <laughs> some things where he came up where he's like, sorry, I did not do that and started raising his voice, which probably wasn't the wisest thing to do. But I can understand you'd be a little heated in the moment. Well, I mean, I mean, you could also be like, well, you know, I'm 45 now. You're talking about when I was 12. I don't, I don't really know. I don't I don't I don't know. You know, <laughs> I did some bad stuff with drugs way right. back when. Why don't we just right. move on? <laughs> That's crazy. That's well, look. I, I, you know, I hope he gets his life together. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you did your novelette, I guess. Novella. Novella, whatever we want to call it, uh, seemed to really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to call it either. Seemed as it seemed to help the guy. Just one of the travesties and injustices that we have in our country. Going on to the next travesty and injustice, insist therapeutics in and of itself. Yeah. I liked your book. Like I said, I, um. Uh, I read it all in one day. You know, it's not a it's not a hefty book, couple hundred, you know, two hundred and fifty, almost three hundred pages, but really right to the point. And if I may say, one of the things I like about your book is you're not overly judgmental. You know, you're just you're really just kind of being the narrator for some of these people. I was overly judgmental 
I mean, I just hate some of these people in here. Let's get yeah. started. You know, John Kapoor. <laughs> Did you think I was too soft on them? I, I you know, no, because you know, I I came away still like thinking to myself, I mean, these are just some really bad guys, really bad guys, and. You know, from my perspective, I don't know if you know this, but like I was being pitched this idea all the time. To short, to short inses. Yeah. I mean, when these articles started coming out in the, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and then these lawsuits, uh, these quietams started being released. I think that first one is the kind of thing that hedge funds and shorts pick up on that maybe nobody else sees some obscure lawsuit being unsealed in Texas, but they did. And, yeah, you know, it was just for for me. I never I never took it up. I'm glad that Roddy Boyd did, and I think he did a wonderful job. And it was something that a reporter probably should do, rather than than maybe somebody who's a short seller like myself or an activist short. But one of the things that I always hated about the pitch, and and I love that that you didn't necessarily go there, was and they have a stripper. As as their yeah as their regional sales manager in Michigan, she's right off she's right off the pole. I mean, I just I just didn't find it interesting, and it, you know I didn't think it was. I mean, like you talk about these drug reps. I mean, let's face it, they're all attractive people, so it makes sense on that level, right? And and when you talk yeah. about off off label marketing, it was kind of thinking, well, everybody does it, except. This is a really dangerous drug that kills people. So there were things about it that I give myself excuses for, for, right. for like being, you know, thinking there were more interesting things to do back in 15. And I like how you didn't really like make her a central part of the story mm -hmm. because she wasn't. Sunrise Lee, by the way, is her name. Yeah, in the media coverage of this case, which eventually went to trial, a 14-week trial in Massachusetts, which I attended all of, she, yeah, um, she, you know, like you say, it was, it was, you know, sex sells. So the media was all over the fact that there was a stripper who was hired and recruited into the company. And, <laughs> you know, she allegedly gave a lap dance to a doctor. Probably not the first in history. And yeah, right. But I agree with you. It's kind of, that's, that's the sizzle and not the steak. Uh, that's, that's not what makes the story important. And yeah, like every drug company is going to great lengths to persuade doctors to prescribe. And, you know, what do you do to achieve that? You use flirtation, you use money, you use, I mean, so, you know, what, what INSYS did, yes, I will agree with you, was kind of extraordinarily evil, but, but it also like, it isn't that different from what goes on every day in pharma. You if know? That became part of my problem on the short thesis too. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not all that different than seizure medications sometimes that are off label, off labels prescribed to children and things of that nature. But here, I think the government had it right. It, it, it ended up becoming a criminal enterprise at some point. If it wasn't conceived that way, which I probably think it wasn't, and, you know, to, to back up for a second, John Kapoor, mm -hmm. who really ran the company, right? I mean, I'd have to say, was a genius. He was yeah. a very, very smart guy. Yep. I think a very, that's kind of a genius inventor, most of all. Like, he was a scientist, first and foremost. And he, and he saw his wife die of cancer in excruciating pain. Yep. As, as, as can happen, right? There was really, yep. towards the end nothing that could alleviate her suffering and that led him to to want to make fentanyl uh which became his drug subsis not more accessible but but faster acting i guess i would say right it was the fastest acting yeah in in the bunch yeah 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 there was this class of drugs that are used for so-called breakthrough pain um where you know it, for cancer patients um what you'll often have is the patient will have sort of like a baseline right. level of pain and they're on oxycontin these longer acting opioids but then like they might have the even worse pain so on top of that they'll take these um fentanyl based drugs and there's like a small class of products and he was going to enter it and have the best in class and I, like i think i think it, i think it might have been 
he probably did. I think I think substance was the best drug in the class. Yeah, and and I think it might still be. Uh, but you know, the thesis. I'm gonna again go mm-hmm. back to like when is because all these memories are flooding back to me now. The thesis being the TAM, <laughs> starting out with that the total addressable market of this drug would never be big enough for this company to be, you know, super profitable, which, which led to the off-label marketing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say, you know, the, 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 the TAM, it's, it's only for breakthrough cancer pain. Right. And I, and I felt, I would, I would remember saying to a guy, explain to me what breakthrough cancer pain is. Because notionally I get if somebody has like stage four pancreatic cancer that, you know, mm-hmm. that's got to be excruciating, but. I mean, if I'm diagnosed with testicular cancer, that information itself is breakthrough cancer pain to me. <laughs> That's mean, true. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm like, give it to me. So what, what is breakthrough cancer pain? I mean, anybody who had cancer could have gotten it, right? Yeah, this is true. Um, but it's particularly common in like the end stages of the disease that you know, it's awful. Like cancer is like, it'll literally start eating away at your bone, at your tissue and the pain can be unbearable. And, you know, the drug could be a godsend for people like that. Sure. And it is, I think. This is, this is, this is like, my story is not about demonizing uh, opioids. I mean, there are some people who will be like, well, this is a loaded gun. This drug never should have existed. You can't have like a prescription drug that a person can take home that is this powerful because it's like a hundred times as powerful as morphine you know if if closely monitored if used with the appropriate patient i think it's a good drug that wasn't the issue the issue was uh you know the breakthrough as you say the breakthrough cancer pain market wasn't wasn't big enough for john kapoor and the rest of the insys crew even the cancer market itself because i don't think I don't think he was getting pushback. Insys was getting pushback from any of the drug carriers, uh, insurance companies, uh, for anyone who had cancer at all. Yeah, that's right. Really? That's right. That's right. Okay, so, so I mean, cancer in and of itself is, is a pretty big market. Yeah, but they weren't even going after that market. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was like... This is where they become criminals, right. They, it was basically incidental that there were some cancer patients in the mix, but the, you know what they were going after was doctors who were high prescribers of opioids. Period. So, and who's that? You know, like you could say, like, so they split the doctors into deciles. Who are the highest prescribers? Who are the decile ten? Who are the decile ten? Well, there are people who prolifically prescribe opioids. Period. Not to breakthrough cancer pain patients but to everyone. And, um, you know, so there's, there may be a market logic and going after the top customers, so to speak, but where that leads you in this case is to pill mill. Right. I mean, notionally you would have thought, okay, we will go to the top cancer centers across the country, but that's not what they did. They went to the top pill mills across the country. Pretty much. And that, you know, one interesting thing though, is they didn't, invent this technique by any means they you know the existing market for these drugs was the majority of it was off-label cephalon which is now a division of teva was the leading player in the market and they had already done all sorts of off-label marketing schemes and built a market that was 80 percent or 90% non-cancer patients. And that's where they got that guy who was the VP of marketing. Yeah. Well, uh, Cephalon comes up over and over in this book as like, this is their, this is the company they want to be like. They went and recruited people from Cephalon. And, you know, I think, I think where this really started to veer off, the the start of it being what I, what I would consider a criminal enterprise is when, when they hired Berlikoff, Mm -hmm. total scumbag total scumbag you could not make him redeeming if you tried and i and i get that there are people throughout this that are like you know he's he's at his come to jesus moment and feels bad about what he i'm not buying it for a second (laughs) did you buy i mean do you feel like he had any kind of remorse real remorse i think he does a little bit he's 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 a salesman i mean to me it's like did these guys do a bad thing? They absolutely did. But 
you know, it's not like unrecognizable to any of us that the decisions they made were basically driven by the logic of the market. And they just went like this much farther, you know, than the competition, but he, he's a salesman. That's what he does is sell. He didn't think about the patients. He should be held accountable for that. But I don't know. I, I don't think he's like some unreal bad guy. It's not Hitler. Um, well, look, you know, I, um, I, I think people died because he only cared about himself and money. Uh, and he, he liked Kapoor, but, you know, I mean, at least Kapoor had that initial drive from his wife. If you buy that, which some people don't, but okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> and and the narcissism that comes with being, you know, a public company CEO. Right. Uh, but this this Berlikoff guy was all about hiring. It was, it was funny because you you say in your book here, people that were loyal to him and that would do whatever he told them to yeah. do, even even when they asked them, "Is this legal?" You know, they would strictly kind of know that the answer was no, but they would do it because they were loyal to him. Yeah, but, but but Kapoor in the beginning was like, piss off. We don't want legal and compliance even touching this. Go out and sell, right? So Absolutely. And, and you know, it's like Alec Berlikoff went around with the marketing budget that he was given. It wasn't his money. It was John Kapoor's money. And, you know, the idea that, like, Kapoor and Babbage were unaware of what Berlikoff was doing. I, oh I no, they, they 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 were they were aware, and 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 Kapoor himself, like it's it's interesting when I read your book, you get that the, he was he was penny wise and dollar stupid, <laughs> really in a lot of ways. <laughs> he spent a ton of money bringing this to market, but then wanted to pinch, you know, yeah. every little dime out of out of hiring quality people or compliance or mm -hmm. uh, legal things of this nature. And it was all about money with him and not spending that money. Even when they started to make it, he didn't want to spend it anymore. But you know, I'm, you know, I'm still, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta go back to, there were two things for me in your book that made this a criminal enterprise. And it was the hiring of Berlikoff and what he did with that sales team which was just about paying doctors speaker fees in a quid pro quo to, to prescribe their drugs. And when they took the approvals in-house, and the, the, the one woman in here, this Gutierrez, Liz Gutierrez, who really kind of mastered how to get insurance companies through a script they called, I, I guess you called it the spiel? Yeah, that's what they called it internally. But basically the... The, the drug was so expensive. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars a month. It's not like Oxycontin or Vicodin that you pick up at the pharmacy. So because of that, it, the insurance companies required prior approval. So the doctor would write the script. That didn't mean the insurance company was going to cover it. So you had this problem of like, well, how do you justify these scripts that are going to the patients that are really not appropriate for it? So so the the instant solution was to like bring it all in house and have a team of people who would call into the insurers and try to convince them to cover the drug. Now, with with a, with a drug like this, you inherently would want a third party to do that for, if no other reason, compliance alone, which they started out doing. The problem became that this third party was compliant, <laughs> and. And, and got about the same amount of approvals as Cephalon or other drug companies who were probably still pushing the gray line. Yeah. But, th but that approval rate was like 30% at the high end. And, and through the spiel, the script, and, and it is another reason why I think John Kapoor was cheap because he's paying these people like 10 bucks to 20 bucks an hour. Yes. And then as a, as a bonus, 100 bucks a week, which was like real money to them. Mm -hmm. What's Arizona? Well, I mean, the, the people were dying. They, they got it up to 87%. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. would think that some people would notice that, you know, like. <laughs> well, some people did notice it. The shorts noticed it. 
and they deserve a lot of credit and Roddy boy deserves a lot of credit for, you know, noticing that it just, it just didn't make any sense. Like, and you know, you have to wonder about, by the way, the board of directors and, and I, John Kapoor was chief executive of the board. And it seems that, you know, everyone just went along with what he did, but well, look, it's funny how like you know our conversation the way it's going like you know i'm going after berlikoff and you're like yeah and then you know but i i'm gonna say here with the board of directors none of them care in any company that it is it is the single biggest problem we have in in the corporate world today is they're actually called the independent board of directors correct Mm -hmm. i mean they're so fucking bad at this no, oh, there, there! I swore my dad's gonna kill me. You're gonna have to cut that. The, it just gets me heated that we don't even call them independent anymore because they're not. Mm-hmm. They're just getting their fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year, which means nothing to them. It's all the shares that matter to them, and they don't do their job. And none of them. How many of them were put on trial? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Only Kapoor went on trial. The rest of them. Right, right. Gotten off pretty lightly. And, and, and every company committee, and you make a point in your book here of every drug company, and you named like the seven or eight biggest that have paid fines in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, which they just bake in, right, to their, to their P&L. Yep. <laughs> and there was like one other case where somebody went to jail. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just paying a fine. Yeah, I mean, that's and, that's what's really extraordinary and unique about this case is that, you know, this this is the model, basically a drug company, the existing model before this was a drug company, you know, the feds like drop a subpoena on them. Maybe the stock takes a little bit of a hit, but like what ensues is they hire a big time law firm, law firm engages with DOJ, it goes on for years. And then a settlement is announced and like a dollar figure is paid and maybe the company pleads guilty to a crime. I mean, to begin with, that's a little silly, right? Like a company doesn't make decisions. People make decisions. Well, I've said it often. (laughs) But the people, you know, they walk away and some of them go on to have great careers in pharma at the next company. And so in this case, they individually charged the top executives of the company, DOJ did. I mean, because the, the, not only was the behavior so flagrant, but it was also, they were so bad at covering their tracks that they left just like a wealth of evidence. And it was a small company. So like the people at the top weren't as insulated from the nitty gritty as you might be at a big company. Um, well, that was Kapoor's big mistake, right? Yeah. He was so hands-on and he just could not let control go to the degree where he could not have any plausible deniability. Exactly. You know, and, and you wouldn't, you know, uh, the CEO of a big drug company would not want to know what was going on in a clinic that, that the company was calling on and they would find ways to like keep that information from him. Oh, you, you had some great detail in here. I mean, like, you know, they're, they're getting a subpoena first from, you know, the government, you know, it was FDA or SEC or whatever, which is is a big enough deal. But then they then they get a subpoena from the DOJ. And even after that, they go on to commit one of their biggest crimes. Like six, seven months later, they go to one of their top customers and say, we will send you the drugs directly rather than through <laughs> McKesson or you know, one of the other Cardinal health. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a big, big no, no in compliance. And, and that was after they received a DOJ subpoena. Yeah. They really, um, <laughs> the hubris is kind of extraordinary. I mean, they just, they just thought, and I mean, I think they looked at the precedents and they said, you know, what, what's going to happen is like, eventually we're going to pay a big fine, you know, and all the more reason that we should make more money in the meantime and just get more aggressive. But they really didn't curb their behavior at all. And there were a few people's voices at the company who were like, this is crazy. Well, yeah, th- th- there's the guy, Napolitaniano. Napolitano. You know, you, you do put in here, there are many times where he was like, you know, look, this is just wrong or I'm not going to do this. Like as a, for instance, there was, there was a big fight early on about him running a report of the doctors that were being paid speaker fees in relation to how much they're prescribing. Exactly. And 
the ROI report. Yeah, yeah, return on investment report. And and he knew from from his days at Cephalon and and other investigations that had happened at prior, prior companies. This was a a smoking gun document. Yep, it's like here's the quid pro quo written in black and white. But he did it. <laughs> right? Did he quit? No. Did he? No. Did he blow the whistle? No. But he didn't get indicted. He was the only one that didn't get indicted. Yeah. And he instead, you know, gets an immunity deal and is one of the star witnesses at trial. Well, he, he actually, I, you know, I don't know. It wasn't clear. I'm not, I don't know if I'm remembering it clearly, but, I, you know, to me, the first one that turned was my, my favorite, Berlikoff, because they thought, they thought Napolitano wasn't going to make a great witness because he had all these reasons why he didn't do anything wrong, even though he wasn't being indicted and he got immunity. He wasn't. He wasn't going to make a great witness. Not that Berlikoff wasn't an, an, an entire shit show in itself on the stand, which I want to talk about. But once, once Berlikoff turned, Babbage turned. And that was it. Yeah, that was it. I mean, that, especially with, you know, that, that, that was basically the top three. And you had number three and number two turned on the top guy, Kapoor. And, you know, they, right. yeah, and, and the government was pretty clear about it, that their goal in this was to reach the top of the pyramid. I have no problem with that in this case. I, I do have a problem that, that, you know, the stripper got rung up yeah. in the end. <laughs> I, you know, she got no deal and, and she went to jail. She's just a field rep. I mean, yeah, she got. I host. mean, you know, in a, in a RICO charge, there are like, like, like five predicates that you you have to achieve. And. I don't know how they got there with her. Yeah, I think there are five that you can be charged with, but it, but you just need two. You know, if you're charging someone, they have to have committed like multiple instances of of two predicate acts because it's basically like the the charge is a conspiracy, but then it's like a conspiracy to do what? That's the predicate, and and you know it, it can be murder in a drug gang, etc. Yes, in this case, the charge was basically that she was involved in both the um the the payoffs the, the bribes payoffs and, bribes, the and then that she was also implicated in the uh insurance fraud and that is i didn't see that did you see that yeah no i mean it's a little bit of a stretch i mean you know this is the way rico works is that it's supposed to be like if you are joined in a conspiracy and you admit to knowing about other things that are happened, you're sort of tagged with everyone's misconduct, not just your own, but you know, it lets you sort of get away with a lot if you're a prosecutor. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, I think everybody else there um, probably deserved what they got. I felt a little bit for Joe Rowan, who was like one of Berlikoff's first hires and, and in getting to Berlikoff's testimony on the stand, I mean, the guy's a psychopath. I mean, like, he's up there saying, no, 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 I, I love Sunrise Lee. And he literally loved her. They had an affair, as one does with their boss or their <laughs> subordinate. And and Joe Rowan's my best friend. He, as he's sending them to jail. And he, he, as you write in here, he seemed disconnected from that view. Yeah, at that point. He was just unleashing on everybody, like what? Yeah, you know, he was angry. He felt like he was he was going to be set up in this case. Um, he was angry, particularly at Kapoor. He felt like you know, like Kapoor's vision was like hang the whole thing around Berlikoff's neck, and he would be the only one who would go down. Uh, I don't know that that was Kapoor's vision so much as like a bunch of lawyers. But anyway, like he saw that kind of in motion and became angry at everyone turned on them and i think you know he's just like screw it i'm gonna say what happened the guy who insisted on loyalty yeah right well i mean he thought it's funny because he almost posed it as like the disloyalty was that they didn't own up to it like he did <laughs> okay well let's let's go back to this though to begin with berlikoff felt when the house of cards started to fall apart as you write in here that he could go to the DOJ himself <laughs> unaccompanied by a lawyer because he's just that smart. So that's what he did. Yeah. And, and just totally screwed the pooch. Yeah. W went in there for like hours and you know, they're, 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 you're right in there. There are people on the outside of the meeting room 
who I guess had a mic on the inside that acted like they were working just so they could hear this bozo go on and on about all these crimes that were committed around him that he had nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah. He thought he could, you know, he was a salesman, right? He was the head of sales. I had always like been the top salesman in every job. Well, that's not really owning up to it, is it? That that's, that's going in there lying your ass off. And then when you're totally caught a year and a half later, owning up to it and wanting full credit from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair criticism. I mean, he thought that he could talk his way out of it at that point and, you know, put on his little like sales routine about, about who was really responsible for the, for all the crimes and it wasn't him. And, um, right. you know, and he's a very charismatic guy. I mean, if you talk to him, I know you think he's evil, but if you talk to him, I think you'd agree. A lot of evil, evil people are charismatic, I suppose. I, I saw several interviews with him and he comes off terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, and, but you have to be right because what you're saying is pretty much uh, other than Nate Yeager, who was the DOJ guy. Nat Yeager, yep. I'm sorry, Nat Yeager. I mean, listen, if my name was Nat, I'd, I'd, I'd wish somebody <laughs> go, called go me Nate. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, he, he didn't buy any of it right? and never did, right? Not even towards the end. He didn't buy any of it. But uh, Fred Wyshek, very famous prosecutor in Boston who was famous for the Whitey Bulger cases and trying them and, and a real hard guy, 30, 40 years in that in that prosecutor's office at the very end really pleaded for mercy on Berlikoff. Yeah. And it's towards the end of the book there. And I'm just like, wow, man, he got over on this guy too. Interesting. I mean, you know, prosecutors, like you got to look at life from their point of view that they're, tr they're trying this big case. There's going to be national attention. There's, there's like the top lawyers in the game are on the other side of this representing the defendant. And then, you know, what they did in this case, pretty ambitious. They went after basically the entire senior structure of the company. And, you know, who, of course, then they band together in a joint defense agreement and kind of circle the wagons. That was a smart move, actually. Yeah. And, and you know, what often happens is, like, you, you can't prove a case because, because the defense so effectively circles the wagons and no one, you know, no one is willing to like take you inside the thing. So you're, you know, you know, you're, you're sometimes you reach a point of desperation. We need someone on the inside to admit to it and to like tell the story to the jury. Well, I'm behind that though. I, I re really, Evan, I'm behind that. I mean, this is at sentencing. So at sentencing, you know, the, the way you describe it, he, he stood up for Berlikoff more than anybody else. Yeah. Really. And, and it's ironic that Berlikoff got one month less than Joe Rowan. Uh, that's that, that would burn me if I was Joe. I, I, so, but in acceptance of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. I said he accepted the responsibility. And I think that Nate Yeager was like, no, nah, I don't, you know, I don't think he ever really did, but I, I think Nate had it right. And, and, and Fred's getting old. We should also say and mention in all of this, the first Quitam that was filed was filed well before their IPO. Yeah. And and the DOJ decided not to pick it up. And what you know, you don't say who the agents' names are in there because, you know, because that was a big miss. It was a big miss. It was a big miss. You know, at the time, like Insys was a pretty small fish and with these whistleblower cases, mm -hmm. the government intervenes. If the government intervenes and sort of takes the lead role, picks up the case, uh, they devote a lot of resources to it. And the end goal is to like recover a bunch of money from the company. Well, there wasn't all that much to recover. I, I would have thought the end goal could have been, you know, stopping more people from dying, but uh, okay. No, it totally is a fair point. And they just, they, they, they whiffed on it. And, and like Furchak is the name of the sales rep who Ray Furchak yeah. filed this. And as you can imagine, he's bitter to this day. He should be. Well, I mean, he, he dropped the quiet Tam after the, the DOJ didn't pick it up right. and, and then ended up to getting totally screwed because there were subsequent quiet Tams filed. And, and these plaintiffs could get up to like a hundred million bucks to split among them. 
and this Fred Wycheck guy gets nothing. Uh, he gets as much as zero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Vertek does not get any money out of this because he dropped his, his case, but that is often what people do when the government doesn't pick it up. Yeah, so you're yeah. sort of screwed as a lonely individual out there. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the government subsequently picks up these other whistleblower cases and those people stand to make a lot of money. I could make the case that his initial quiet tam broke this whole thing. Yeah. Because when it was unsealed in Texas, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that funds and, and short sellers picked up on it. And that was the first that they saw that here, this company going public now, they didn't see the insurance fraud necessarily. I don't think it was in that first suit, that first Quietam. I think what you had was the bribery of the doctors. Yeah. But that, that, was, that was often what was most talked. I, I don't think most of the critics of this company had the insurance fraud right away because that was pretty insular. That was inside the company and they had their own call center or whatever. But they had the bribery of the doctors right away. And I think, I think this guy really broke it. Yeah. Well, he'd be happy to hear you say that. <laughs> well, I think your well, I think your book says that. That that's what I took away from it anyway. I mean, it doesn't necessarily say it as directly as I do, but in reading it and understanding from from people pitching me this idea back in 15, 14, 15, it it was because of that unsealed document. And and then they go on to the trial which was no cut and dry thing. That's right. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I think everybody pretty much thought Elizabeth Holmes was going to get one charge or something. But in this one, I mean, the judge wasn't necessarily like uh, helpful to the prosecution. She was pretty critical throughout the whole thing. And it took a month for the jury to deliberate. Yeah. And during that time, I think the hopes were really rising on the defense of acquittal. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, well, what do they have doubts about? Like, you're looking for doubts. <laughs> That's exactly what you want. But eventually they were convicted. But uh, it was not, you know, on the one hand, there was a lot of evidence. On the other hand, there's often a lot of evidence and it's not it's not so easy to prove. A case, especially, you know, this was a racketeering conspiracy case. They kind of like uh, went for gold and, and pressed pretty weighty charges. And, it, you know, I, I, there was significant doubt on the, among the people that were there about how this was going to go. Yeah, I, I, I can see that because there had been a, a previous case that was pretty similar that uh, resulted in a non-conviction. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, like the company, uh, this was at Warner Chilcott, pretty big pharma company, but they, it wasn't a racketeering conspiracy case and it didn't involve opioids, but it was, it was exactly the same conduct where like using the facade of a speaker program to essentially just get money in the hands of doctors so that they'll, you know, build a relationship with the company and they'll start writing the product. And, you know, all the evidence was laid out. The company had to pay a settlement and plead they tried charging the top executive and he got acquitted. Yeah. But nobody went to jail. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So I think the one thing the judge did do that helped the prosecution was to tell them to narrow the case. And it, often what the DOJ will do is throw the kitchen sink at you. Right. I've got, I've got 90 charges, including jaywalking coming your way. <laughs> uh, and, and the judge was like, look, you know, let's, Let's focus Make on what you're going to focus on, right? And they focused on the RICO charge. And I, and I think that that's what got it done because often, oftentimes, for better or worse, this, this, is, a, this is a double-edged sword for uh, anybody being tried. But the jury instructions can be very, very difficult. And the more charges you have, the more difficult those instructions are to understand. And, and I think this is where it helped. I don't know if you agree with that. but Yeah, I think that's fair. Also, I would, I would just one last thing to point out about the uh, initial uh, lawsuit, Quietam, that was unsealed. It was before the IPO. And we're, we're going to ask the question again, as we often do on this show, where, where were the IPO book runners when they were doing due diligence? <laughs> Collecting their fees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because this was, this was part of the diligence they should have done in, in pre-IPO, in my opinion. 
that that is never done. And then where were the analysts, you know, after the IPO as well? Uh, don't even get me started. Like you, you had a great, you had a great section in here talking about a Jeffries analyst after the Michigan doctor, Doctor Auerbach. Auerbach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You really made these guys pretty sympathetic, and and I felt it. I, you know, I felt the sympathy as well that came through, where they just, I mean, look, they're guilty and and they hurt people, but this guy, they they kind of preyed on these guys that are awkward going through a divorce, not, you know, not really socially apt. And then they, they put these people in there and they just get all kinds of attention and affection. And, and it's to them, they justify it as well. It's one cancer drug or the other. And maybe I'll do more. And then the speaker fees come in. You had a Jeffrey's analyst after this doctor was arrested and it was big news, right? Like everybody was worried except for Kapoor. (laughs) He's just like, whatever. Uh, and uh, the Jeffrey Janice is like, yeah, well, you know, we called, a, we called a bunch of other customers that are prescribing this. And they're like, yeah, we're still going to prescribe it. So we're going we're gonna to go ahead and throw a 51 handle on this. <laughs> and, and it got up to like 47, I think. Really? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what you get from an investment bank analyst these days. If you, <laughs> if you call out that a company is 20% fraud, they'll just give them a 30% haircut. And a price target from there. There you go. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of enablers. It's it's whenever you have a story like this, it's big enough that you know you also have an elite law firms getting involved. Yeah, Scadden Arps was was the law firm that the board of directors hired for the internal investigation. Right. At what point do law firms in all of these cases become complicit and become a you know? If information is now treasure, where is that treasure kept where nobody can really get to it, including the DOJ? I mean, that that treasure is kept at law firms. Yeah, that's a great point. You're talking about the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos story. Yeah, you know, it's a great sort of juicy subplot of uh, John Kerry Rue's reporting was like boys yeah. Schiller. Is this a legal advocate or is this more like a consultant in a cover-up operation? Well, I mean, that's a very nice way of, uh, of putting conspirator. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would, I would love to be charged with a consultant in cover-up operation rather than conspiracy. <laughs> I, I guess we're all really afraid to, like, you know, go after boys or scatting or whatever. I mean, I'll say it, but, like, uh, you know, it, it is it's where our country is with law firms. I mean, they're just, they're just, they're running it. And when you're, when you're in the trouble, you, you hire the best and generally you're going to get out of it because Scadden was actually hired by the board of directors, right? Not John Kapoor. And who do the board of directors work for? The distinction between the two in this case is is pretty. Well, I'm just saying like, who do, who do independent board of directors work for? The shareholders. Right. I, I, and to what benefit was this to the was this internal investigation or any other on earth? What benefit to the shareholders are these internal investigations? I'd make the case not much. Yeah, and in this story, you know, did they protect John Kapoor and Insys and the board of directors from what befell them? Apparently not. Well, I love John Kapoor's A that he took everybody to dinner at his restaurant. But his <laughs> his dinner with Babbage, his you know, his basic basically his prodigal son. Uh, he, he raised this guy from, from bringing him out from Chicago and making him the CEO of his company, which he had no business being. And, you know, that last dinner they had before all the shit went down, he's like, you know, situations like this, there's always a fall guy. That would be you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly how it went down, according to Babbage. And... <laughs> I can't wait to have that conversation with Carl. <laughs> There's always a fall guy. You're going to be the fall guy. He put it more diplomatically, I think, to, uh, to Forbes or something. I, I felt Mike was closest to those issues, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt Mike. Well, yeah, I, I guess you're talking about uh, after basically Mike was gone and the investigations. He was... He was named as uh, on a billionaire's list, John Kapoor, yeah. uh, with with a Forbes magazine article. 
And generally, these things just kind of wax poetic about the genius of, of the billionaire and how they got there. But this Forbes article happened to be pretty critical. And, and Kapoor's answers were something of the kin that I'm just uh, on the board of directors. I don't really have much to do with the company. And those are more Mike Babich's, you know, areas of expertise. So go, go indict him. <laughs> right. Can you, can you imagine being Mike Babich coming home to your wife? How was your day? Uh, yeah. And, and she was a salesperson for, for Insys that was convicted on a separate charge. Yeah. Well, separate, but yeah, she was part of the whole scheme. I mean, in addition to the, she wasn't part of the racketeering uh, trial. Right. So there was like the, the, the seven top people were indicted together in Boston for racketeering conspiracy. But then there were a whole bunch of other instance employees and doctors as part of the scheme who were charged all over the country with anti-kickback statute violations, et cetera. So, yes, Savage's wife was a rep for the company, you know, which to begin with, you might question. And she was one of these reps who sort of wheeled and dealed and got her doctors both speaking to the company, but really they were like speaking to an empty room in a restaurant and essentially having dinner with her and getting paid for it. And then they prescribed a lot of the drug. And so she, she pled to it. You know? Yeah. And she got no time, no time and pulled on Elizabeth Holmes, right. Immediately got pregnant. And then the the case was dragging on. So got pregnant again. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the exact timeline of that, but I do know when the when the DOJ or the FBI showed up at six in the morning that they they it was this this actually is terrible. They had like a ten day old, and they're like you know knocking down the door. By the way, they always show up at six in the morning <laughs> <laughs> or seven. They're they're there early. Doesn't matter if you're like John Kapoor was like seventy something at this point, and you know they come in with the weapons drawn. They don't they don't mess around. Yeah. It's a, you know, you don't have to be a violent criminal. You can just be like sitting at home and you're like, they're coming in with guns. They called the shore patrol for Joe Rowan. I mean, they, they had boats in the water. Yeah, they had guys on a, a police. Yeah, it, it, it really is a big day for them. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it definitely is. You, you, you don't often get to like, you know, put on the windbreaker, break out the the pistol. I mean, like unholster put it. Put the holster on. Jump, jump in a boat. You know, there's got to be a sniper from the boat. Uh, it's it, it had to be pretty nerve wracking for him too to to see that happen. Yeah, there, there's got to be at some point. Just totally going sideways is is someone that they break the door in like dies from like the heart attack of that, yeah. and, and you think. Well, that would hurt the case, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, case yeah. case would be closed. But it, you know, we it, we do know again from the short selling world. I mean, an anecdotal story. Maybe you can, if you're going to ever write anything in Martin Shrikeli, <laughs> John Carnes back in the day had the idea. He's like, this guy's going to get arrested. I love John. Yeah, he's great. This guy's going to get arrested. So John Carnes, a short seller, hired somebody. To sit outside his penthouse. No, he, and he did. I swear to God. No, I know God. the guy's name was Joe. <laughs> sit outside his penthouse and wait for him to get arrested. And sure enough, six in the morning, they show up and they arrest him. And the guy got the photo and got the picture. That's awesome. So, you know, the idea, I guess, with John was like, this can be public information. I'll be short in the morning. Yeah. yeah. It's New York. The police department and everybody else involved already tipped off the media. The media was there for like the perp walk coming out of his penthouse. All that money spent on somebody waiting outside his house was for nothing. But Ugh. it just shows you the links they go to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we yeah. go to. Anyway, what's up next for you? This is a good book. This book is coming out on the 18th of January. Yep. Double day, 18th of January. Going to be doing a bunch of events, uh, some press, some TV, et cetera. And, you know, I'm excited about it. It was a long, it was a long road and, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, I think it's the deepest account that's yet been done of the story. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I liked Roddy's version too. And, you know, I mean, well, Roddy, Roddy deserves a ton of credit cause he was, you know, he was first. Well, you gave him a call out in here. I don't know that he got a ton of credit, uh, <laughs> but you know, 
I think you did more than than anybody else in here anyway. <laughs> well, you know, the story is about the people at the company and the in the government more than it is the And the DOJ and the yes. and the and the prosecution. So yeah, yeah. So where can they buy your book? Uh, just anywhere books are sold on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. You got there's an audio book edition, ebook edition, uh, you know, Amazon, your local independence. It's gonna be everywhere. And uh, they can find you on Twitter. Any anywhere else you uh, want to tell people to find Twitter's you? Twitter's good. Website evanhughes.co, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay. Any preview on your next book? And and by the way, this is for all of you uh, authors out there. If you want to have a really interesting story about your book, do what Evan did and send me a copy ahead of time. <laughs> Uh, I, I promise there's nothing I could do with it. It's it, the proof is written all over it. It's not. It's not. It's not even bound properly. It's just like your editor is making sure I'm not going to resell this thing ahead of time. Yeah, it's, it's it's high security. These advanced editions, but I know I'm glad. I'm glad it got to you. Glad you read it. Glad to be on the show. So are you working on any? What are you working on next? Do you have you got an idea um, yet? Yeah, I do, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not fully baked and I'm not ready for public consumption of it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, look, I, I liked your book. I liked your writing style. I, you know, you, you can't really get through a book in a day if you don't like it. And so thank you for that. You did a really good job here. Thank you. I guess everybody's going to be getting out of jail here in the next couple of years. Sunrise Lee's probably already out. Good for her. She got a year and a day. But we should say John Kapoor got five and a half years. Everybody else got about two and a half years, right? Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. So they'll be getting out in the next year or so. Yes, I think Berlikoff is the arch-villain in this. Having said that, uh, when you get out, Berlikoff, call me. We, you know, we can talk it out. <laughs> call uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> call I would me. love to appear on the show. Yeah, well, look, I'd love to have him on the show, but, you know, that's that's going to be a barn burner because I'm not putting up with any of his bullshit. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. I really uh, had a good time talking to you, Evan. Look forward to your next book and thank you for listening to the Wolfpack. And if you uh, liked what you heard, give us a retweet, give us a like and uh, go buy Evan's book. 